Welcome to Behind the Chalk. I am your host, Lindsay Simpson, and I am so excited to share with you conversations with educators from every level, discussing our passions, insights, research, and experiences across the profession. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today in my very first episode. And I would love to hear your thoughts. So go on over to Twitter and share with them with me at ChalkEDU. I'm so excited to introduce uh, two guests today, and we're going to be talking all about um, their book, um, Myths of Teaching and Learning Debunked, um, as well as a myriad of other aspects of their work and research. So, um, at, you know, I would love to hear from you listeners and hear your thoughts and experiences on this topic. So please head on over to Twitter and share with us as you listen at ChalkEDU. I would love to hear from you. So our guests for today um, are two wonderful professors from St. Bonaventure University, and I would like to welcome them onto the podcast. So if you could please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm Dr. Althea Need Kaminsky, a cognitive psychologist and professor at St. Bonaventure University. Uh, And I am her partner in crime, uh, Dr. Adam Brown, uh, an educational psychologist, uh, and uh, we both co-direct the Center for Attention, Learning, and Memory at St. Bonaventure. Part of this podcast is about education, but I'd like to talk about where we all started uh, as an elementary teacher. It's just something that interests me. So before we get into the topic that we've chosen for today, I would like to ask both of you, what were you like as students in school? Um, I was, I was really quiet. Uh, I was the shy, nerdy kid who sat in the back and I would like blush real red if I had to like talk in front of people. Um, But I always really liked school because even though I was like really shy, school was something that like I was good at and I could be confident in. So it's still, it still kind of blows my mind that my job is literally to like talk in front of people all day. <laughs> That's a very big switch from when I was in school. But yeah, I feel like I was probably your standard nerdy kid in school. I was uh, probably your average student until I got very competitive with a girl in elementary school who was trying to outdo me in a social studies class. And that sort of sparked my interest in doing better in school because I, it, it was mostly just because I had this thing for this girl who I liked, uh, but also I wasn't going to let her, you know, beat me up in social studies class. No, no. Uh, that's where it all, that's where it all started. I love that you remember that. Like you remember the person, you remember the class. <laughs> yeah. I like that you have this like education origin story. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> Well, it was it, it, because it really, it was a, a defining moment. I got to tell you, you know, there was this thing I didn't, not only did I have a thing for her, but I didn't want her to think, you know, I was in this idiot who didn't know what was going on. So I had to keep up with her, even though I didn't want to, you know, study. <laughs> That's fantastic. So what brought you both to the world of education? Especially um, you, I, Althea, since you were so quiet. I, um, I, I was just really fascinated by how people learn. So when I went to college, I I kind of knew that I wanted to study like psychology broadly, like what goes on inside people's heads, right? Fascinating. Um, And then I took a class on memory and that like 
really captured my my interest in just the idea that we all have these internal worlds, um, right? And that each of us has this like fully realized inner life. Um, and the fact that we can communicate that with each other is amazing. So I was really interested in just like how people think and learn. And I remember when I was really little, my mom t- telling me that if I learned how to read, I could learn how to do anything, which seemed like a superpower, right? Um, that you could go from the state of like not knowing and being a total dunce uh, to knowing and being like super cool. Um, again, I was a huge nerd. Uh, so I, I I went to school to learn how people learn, which is how nerdy I am. <laughs> it's, it's, that's really, it was really just like, I think it's really cool that we can go from a state of not knowing and uh, through just like reading words on a page that somebody who I've never even met, they can translate an idea to me. Um, and that that's powerful, right? Cause that was another thing I remember my mom telling me was that not everyone has access to these things. Not everyone gets educated. So there's something really special about learning and the process of learning and how we, how we do that. So I used to teach fourth grade and I wish that I could take what you just said and go back in time and play it for every one of those kids that were like, I don't like reading. I don't need to read. No, it's a superpower, right? Like you get to, like, you don't even, I remember my mom telling me about like, she's like, you could learn how to fix a motorcycle. And I was like, mom, I was six at the time. I was like, I don't have a motorcycle. She's like, I know, but you can still learn how to fix a motorcycle (laughs) (laughs) if you read a book. And I was like, that is really crazy. What else could I learn? Possibilities are endless. Right. It reminds me of like the matrix, you know, where like, he's like, I know Kung Fu. Like, (laughs) yes. How about you, Adam? What brought you into the world of education? So weirdly in undergrad, I was, I I had this triple major. I was a psych philosophy uh, education triple major. And I dropped the education because I told myself, I don't want to be a teacher. That sounds like a bad move for me. Right? And so, yeah. And, uh, and what really brought me back was the stark difference between many of the, res- many of the researchers and the top research articles in the field uh, that Dr. Kaminsky is talking about in cognitive psychology that differed from what was coming out of education. There were things in education that that I was like, this is flying right in the face of this course that I'm taking in cognitive psychology. What what is going on here? That sort of like sparked my interest in like, I I thought of the bigger issue. I'm like, there are hundreds of thousands of kids that are getting this information that is in stark contrast to this other you know, really sciencey sort of part of, of how psych works and cognitive psych. And they're, and they're, and they're, those things are in contrast. How? That means somebody's getting screwed. Either the cognitive psychologists are wrong or a lot of kids are getting the short end of the stick. And that, that was sort of like my push. I love that. So um, for my, for my listeners out there, um, any of you who stumble upon this podcast, so I actually had um, him for a professor um, when I was at St. Bonaventure doing my master's program. And you were by far uh, the most challenging professor that I had. 
Uh, but I loved it because it was such new information. Um, I had gone right from my undergrad to my graduate program. And a lot of what you were saying was opposite of what I was getting, or it was yes. in more detail that made sense that really brought in a scientific data to explain this is how you teach kids and this is why you teach kids that way. And so I loved it. So I'm so happy that you took the turn back into education because I think we need people like you uh, bridging those two worlds together. And they are two separate worlds. In the real world out there, uh, Althea can, can back me up on this. A lot of cognitive psychologists and educational psychologists, they, they, they butt heads. They don't cooperate. Yeah, sort of a, it's, it's, it's interesting because we study the same things, right? We're interested in the same uh, right questions, but we have different backgrounds and take different approaches to it. And so it's something, I think it's a shame, right? I think there's much more to learn by, by working together than by trying to like, uh, people in academia get weird and like, they're like, this is my little like corner of the world. And like, you can't touch it, which is strange, right? Cause we're all like fighting over the same, like little like shreds of funding for these things. Uh, so I think it'd be better if we could work together and like value those different experiences that people have. Cause it's something that I, um, that I certainly see all the time in terms of like the value of understanding research, uh, which is what, what Adam and I do, right? that's our job. And also the value of understanding experience and like direct classroom experience. Uh, and I think those are two things that have to be kind of reconciled so that the two fields can work together. Thank you so much for sharing that. I just find it's so interesting what people were like as students, how they made themselves into this profession and then to see where they went. So we're gonna take a break. And when we come back, we're gonna dive right into our topic about myths of teaching and learning. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in just one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. So thank you for joining us. We are back discussing myths of teaching and learning with Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Brown from St. Bonaventure University. So I would like to chat with you about your book because it is uh, a book that might ruffle some feathers of some educators out there, which kind of is something that I love about it. So first and foremost, before we dive into the book, what inspired you? And we touched upon it a little bit already in, in the beginning of our podcast episode, but what inspired you to write a book on debunking the myths of teaching and learning? <laughs> I was, I'm going to let Adam take this one because he comes from the educational psychology world and because it was really his uh, initial idea, right? When we first started talking about working together, uh, you have, uh, I think, more of a, a deeper insight into like what educators are being taught because you 
teach educators <laughs> uh, versus me over in cognitive psychology. There were things that you told me that like shocked me that I yeah. had like never heard yeah. of and like did yeah. not know were a thing. And then so we had upset. these conversations and I was like, wait, what? That, yeah. what? She is completely right. I was, uh, a bunch of the motivation for this book was because I was upset that there was the, the, that you that you know that that thing that I talked about in the first section of the podcast where it's like there's this, this disconnect between hard science and some of the stuff that was going out and that in that um, future teacher educators were, were learning there was this the, there were problems so a lot of it was fine um, but there was some of it that was that was not correct and was not backed by good science. Uh, but but was being taught as if it was good science. And if you have a group of individuals who, who don't have a good background on how to pull those two things apart, like evidence that's pretty good evidence or you know not so good evidence from evidence that's very good evidence. If you don't have that background, it's super difficult because you're getting two different messages, right? Uh, and that that really upset me enough that and, and frankly, um, I this is this you want to know where it really originally came out. It was an email that I sent out to the entire faculty uh, of St. Bonaventure, telling them that learning styles was not a thing, and that let's let's go with the science, right? And Althea was called out to to sort of like either debunk me or or you know back me in this thing, which can, I imagine put her in an awkward position, right? Uh, but she did her homework and um, and the rest is history. Right. I, I usually take a back seat whenever there's like, you know, controversial things that get sent out on the, the listserv at work. Uh, so yeah, uh, one of my colleagues in the psych department was like, hmm, we just hired a cognitive psychologist. Why, why did you tell us about what I'm saying? And I was like, no, he's he's right. So, so you got dragged into this partnership, whether you liked it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to give too much of the book away because I want our listeners to go um, buy it. It's on Amazon. I will put the link in our show notes. Uh, but the book is called Five Teaching and Learning Myths Debunked, A Guide for Teachers. So could you just quickly kind of name those five out so that our listeners know what we're referencing when we talk about teaching and leaving, learning myths that are debunked. Yeah, so um, we have the myth of multitasking. So the idea that you can do multiple things at the same time. Uh, you can't, it may feel like you can, but you don't really. There's some other kind of interesting things that are going on in the background. Um, ooh, I'm probably gonna go out of order because uh, next I'm gonna go to the related myth, which is uh, the myth of focus, which is uh, just basically saying that people have this idea that you can, uh, you're either good at focusing or not focusing. And you can actually like learn to improve that it's a skill just like yes. anything else requires yes. practice um there's uh the myth around testing examples examples, examples. What, see we're usually just talking about these as concepts we haven't actually list out the myths in the time multitasking focus there's the examples chapters focusing on the important use of examples and learning styles so learning styles is, I think, the one that probably would, uh, if I went to work and said, uh, guess what, guys, learning styles, not a thing. 
Uh, I think that would probably be the one that would cause the most amount of issue. So and this uh, is the one you, that shocked me. Yeah. So when you, you know, did your research um, and you started sharing it out, what was the response from educators to your findings? I think, I mean, I feel like there's been a range of responses, right? I've had people at, at our workshops and, and interactions say, I knew it, <laughs> right? And say like, God, oh, thank goodness, right? I've had people come and say like, thank you because like, it always seemed like I had to do all this extra work and now I can point to this and say, I'm not doing it. <laughs> like there's this way too much stuff. There are other people who, um, right? So it's ranged from that to people being, um, it genuinely like like upset and concerned, right? Because this is something that the that they've been taught to, that, to be true, and that makes some sort of intuitive sense to them, and it's part of like their worldview. I've discovered, um, right? And so I, I think when people when we talk about learning styles, sometimes what people hear is when we say there's no such thing as learning styles in terms of you're an auditory versus a visual learner. What people instead hear is there's no individual differences of learning. And that's not true. Learners are all different. Learners all have unique experiences and backgrounds and capabilities that will um, change, right? How they're going to interact with the material. That is most definitely true. It just so happens <laughs> that the idea that some people learn better visually or auditorily or what have you is not true. It, it doesn't make any sense based on like how we know our cognitive processes work. Um, so I think if you're using learning styles as a stand-in to say, hey, kids are different and they learn different in different ways and there are different tools we should be using for different kids, um, then we're not telling you that that's untrue. Kids are different. Kids do have different backgrounds and different abilities that are going to affect their learning. Um, we're just saying like this learning styles is not the way to go about it. Um, there's, there's no no reason to believe that it should work based on our understanding of how psych like, cognitive processes work in psychology. Um, there's also no uh, no evidence that it does work uh, whenever people actually do experiments on it. And so that's like, again, one of the shocking things to me, I, I have a PhD in cognitive psychology. Nobody ever once mentioned learning styles. Like I went through the whole thing. We're talking like almost 10 years of school and I come out and everyone's like, what's your learning style? And I was like, what? Like, what? What's that? <laughs> what, what? I've never, huh? I was like, what Harry Potter house do you belong to? Like that's, it's like that. <laughs> like, it's kind of fun, but like, I'm not gonna base an education system around it. And I am 100% behind her. And well, and he, he, here is a, like some of the back theory that, that supports it, that dual coding is, is solid. And it is a very good theory. It, it lets us know that we have um, our two main information processing systems are a visual system and an auditory system. What that means is we're all visual learners, every one of us. You, pick, you, you match pictures with you know, verbal information, you are more likely to find it in the future because you have another tag to that information. So yes, are you a visual learner? Kinda, not in the way uh, you know, that the theory goes, but, but we all are. You, know, you, you tag visual information, you're gonna find the information in a more easy manner. When I, when I explain it to my, my students like that, they sort of like get it. A lot of them have been, they drank the Kool-Aid. You know, they, 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 they 100% drank the Kool-Aid and they knew, and I'm just trying, I'm trying to find a bridge to them 
and say, well, you know, what you've been taught may be not totally accurate. Here is a way to come to the, to the you know, the, where the Jedi's are, okay? You can come over here where it's actually true, right? And you can keep a lot of the things that you were taught and you, you know, you believe about yourself. Um, yes, when you're, when you're putting your notes together, draw pictures, draw diagrams, draw, you know, yes, do that. They will help you remember things. Um, if you're a professor or a teacher and you're presenting stuff to people, instead of just talking over your PowerPoint, how about either you talk and your PowerPoint has an image on it, or if, there, if there's language on your PowerPoint, let them copy it down and then tag it with some sort of piece of image because, you know, because then, then at least it helps them find that in the future. That those sorts of things, I think, I think probably that last section, you're right, Lindsay, on learning styles is the most contentious to the teaching world. I think Althea and I, here's a big one for all your listeners. We held a workshop for principals and superintendents, okay? After we had already pulled them in with the multitasking stuff, so they were on our side totally. At the end, when we told them that, that learning styles was not a thing, half of those teachers and administrators, and, or sorry, the, the principals and superintendents, half of them were, were responding exactly like Althea talked about earlier, how they're like, I knew it, right? The other half were shaking their head being like, oh no, oh no. I, you know, basically I've told that line or, you know, I have pulled my teaching faculty in that direction only to find out, oh shit, this is not a thing, right? Which, which think about it, right? That's your job to try to pull, pull your whole teaching staff in a direction that's follow science only to find out, damn it, that's not real. Oh, I could see it in their faces. It was, it was enlightening. And that that's was a big, yeah, that's a big thing. So when I, um, this was not the class that I took from you. I took a research methods class with you, but, um, when I had you as, as a professor and like I said, I had come from undergrad and that's all we did right? We talked about learning styles until we were blue in the face. And when I was in grad school, I was at the time um, a long-term substitute in a special education classroom. It was a 611, or sorry, it was an 811 class. And I had, I think, six kids. Um, and that is how we organized the room. And that's, it's what I inherited. So I kept going with it, but it was kind of a confirmation. Like, yep, I learned about learning styles in school. Here's a classroom their living learning styles, this must be what it is. So fast forward several years, uh, when I hear about this book and what you guys have done, I was one of those people that thought, this cannot be, this cannot be right. And I really wanted to read the book and, and pull up other research and be like, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me tell you, you're wrong. <laughs> Not the case, because then it, it does it, you know, as you because I just, I drank the Kool-Aid, right? I, I believed it. I hung on to it. And I just thought this is such an easy, concrete thing for me as a teacher to hold on to, especially a newbie for me to hold on to like, yep, as, as long as I go into this classroom and, you know, hang on to these learning styles and address all these learning styles, um, I can do it. I will reach every kid and everything will be perfect. And you did, you kind of ripped the rug out of right from underneath me. Uh, but it does, it makes sense. And so what I think I would hear 
uh, from teachers or what I have heard when I kind of introduce this here and there, like, hey, like maybe you want to read this book or maybe you want to talk to these people. Well, then what are we going to do? And that's the question. Like if, if this thing isn't real, if, if these things uh, don't have the effect that we've always been told they have, then what are we supposed to do instead? So that's a question I'm going to pose to you guys. What do you suggest to educators to do instead for effective teaching? Well, Adam already brought up dual coding, right? So dual coding is this idea that if you present verbal and visual information together, um, the benefit to learning will be greater than if you presented either one alone or if you doubled up on them. And a lot of times we accidentally double up on them. Um, so and it's actually what, uh, in some cases, it's what you're already doing. So for a lot of people, they said, okay, well, I've got my visual learners and my verbal learners. How do I reach both of them? I'm going to give them both visual and verbal material. And if that's what you're doing, keep doing that. Like, that's great, uh, right? Because you need to have that, having the dual coding, having both visual information and verbal information together benefits. And it benefits everyone, right? Um, and then you don't have to worry that you're not getting to the visual kids or the verbal kids. They aren't visual or verbal. Um, or kinesthetic, which is like a weird one. I always like ask my students if they've been like diagnosed with a learning style and if any of them are kinesthetic and some of them will raise their hand and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, explain it to me. <laughs> does that mean you have to hold like, um, and, but to bring that up too, like it is beneficial sometimes to have um, things that we maybe would consider more kinesthetic, mostly kinesthetic because it is um, more concrete, right? So I'm thinking of like ball and stick models in chemistry, right? Um, those work not just because you're like literally like jamming balls and sticks together to make molecules, but it makes this really abstract idea concrete, right? So I think for a lot of educators, a lot of the tools you're using are already really useful and you don't have to like, I don't wanna have to tell someone that like, they have to completely redo everything that they've ever done. That's way too much work. None of us have time for that. Um, instead, one of our goals was the book was to hopefully point out ways in which um, you can continue what you're doing and sl slowly start to shift things over time, right? Um, and that hopefully having a better understanding about why it works the way it does means that you can employ that more, more effectively, right? You can say, oh, I see. This is why maybe that lesson worked out a bit better than the other lesson, because here I really focused on um, combining the visual and verbal. So an example that Adam and I always talk about, and it's one that he brought up before, is college professors are really guilty of putting up a slideshow and just talking over the slides. So we're going to take a second to break down what you're asking students to do in that scenario. So you've got a wall of text. So students have to read that. And, every, and when you're reading, you're using your inner verbal voice, your literal inner voice, um, right? The, the voice inside your head. Hopefully it's your own, <laughs> um, right? So you're reading through. Uh, you're, we're asking you to take notes. So you have to read through and listen to the voice inside your head as you're reading, but also use the voice inside your head to write down and to make words. Then you're also listening to, you know, my voice over that. So now you've got my voice inside your head talking over the voice inside your head that's reading and the voice inside your head that's trying to write stuff down. That's a lot, right? And then we have the audacity to get upset that students don't remember what the heck we just told them, right? We're asking them to do all these crazy things. Instead, if you pause, right? You put information up, pause, let students write that down or provide pictures and explain a diagram, talk over the picture, you don't have that clash um, and, and you're giving people more information without overwhelming them in a way that they can um, hopefully uh, better understand, right? Uh, so 
being mindful of things like that, we're like, okay, so there you're, you're aware of modalities. You're being aware of how students are learning. Um, and it's probably something that you've done anyways, or had to think about anyways, if you've said, I've got visual students, right? So how do I get to them? I know I'll put up a picture and talk about it. That's great. Keep doing that. Um, uh, but maybe again, just be more aware of why that's beneficial and hopefully like find more ways to, to work that in when possible. Yeah, so when you were explaining all the things that someone has to do in that traditional teaching style of putting up a slide and talking over it, I had a hard enough time trying to follow all the different things that are supposed to be going on. Um, you know, it, if, if it's confusing for me to just follow along to you describing it, it certainly is confusing and difficult to follow on for a student who certainly yes. is not an expert in learning. They're learning the skills to be a learner, especially when we're talking about elementary, middle school, or high school. You know, by college, hopefully kids have the skills needed to learn, but we all know that they don't come in experts. <laughs> so, you know, I think that definitely makes sense. And it actually, listening to you talk about that, made me realize some of the things that occurred in March when the world shut down, um, you know, can we re remember what normalcy was? I don't know. But when my day job is a tech integrator and an instructional coach, and when the world ended, we had to hop online. And a lot of teachers were taking their lesson plans and just putting them online, having kids hop on Zoom, and they were just going to duplicate the process. And kids were like, I can't do this. Like, I, I can't follow along. I'm having a hard time. But... Mm -hmm. The teachers, one of their, at our school at least, requirements was that all of their sessions were recorded and posted so that students could watch them later because a lot of our students don't have access to internet. So they had to record them so kids could go download whatever. Moral of the story, the kids were saying how much easier it actually was to learn some of this material because they could pause, pause. they could rewind, they could stop the video to take their notes before continuing on. And then there was started to be a shift with some of our educators and saying like, actually I could do this in a more efficient way. You know, why don't we pause? Why don't we add more opportunity for discussion um, and giving you the opportunity to write it down talk about it, let it sink in before I keep going. Um, so, it just makes total sense on what you were describing and then what we experienced um, as we entered this hybrid model and realizing that what we were doing in the classroom wasn't going to work when we went into our online model. And the reality is it really wasn't working in the in-person model either. Right. You just didn't know there was this other way. I think part of it is as, at least as, you know, we work obviously more closely with professors, but we have this fear of like silence in the classroom, right? Like if I'm not talking, I'm not in control. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but I have, I have a, a reoccurring stress dream before the start of every semester where I like lose control of the classroom because it's something ridiculous. Like what I remember was like, I was for some reason teaching an intro to French class. Uh, I took French in college. I cannot teach French. Um, but in the dream, I was teaching French and the students knew, they knew I couldn't teach this. And they 
they were giving me guff. They were talking back. I lost control of the classroom. I wake up and like covered in sweat, right? Like just like panicked. Um, so like we have this like fear of like not being in control that we're not directing learning. And so it's hard. It's hard to say, I'm going to wait for you to write that down. And like literally like count out the seconds you're in. And it takes practice. And I've definitely talked with uh, teachers and professors who are good at that and who like are just as I'm shocked by like, I'm like people are, what's learning styles? I don't understand. I, I talked to other professors and teachers and they're like, you mean you don't just pause? What's wrong with you? <laughs> they're like, of course I do. They're like, that's just what you do when you teach. And I'm like, well, I, nobody told me when I started off either. It, it's something that you have to practice at and to get comfortable and to, to know when and for how long, right? And to kind of get used to that, that feedback with your students. Yeah, so in the education world, I always heard it as wait time and, and providing that wait time for students. And when I jumped the fence from being a special education teacher with six kids in the room um, and multiple adults to being a gen ed teacher with 20 kids in the room by myself, I had that same nightmare that I could not get the class to listen to me, that I couldn't do it. Um, but then I, one of my first peer observations, my feedback was, you need to give wait time. You just talk and talk and talk. So, well, I'm nervous. When I'm nervous, I just keep talking for one. And two, if I stop talking, they're going to stop listening and then I'm going to lose them. No, that's not, that's not true. So it, it took a lot of um, self-discipline and training to build in where I would actually like close my eyes for a minute and count. <laughs> so I would not keep talking. It's a good move. It, it is a good move. Especially if you know they're taking notes because those notes in the background are gonna go away soon. You know, everyone's on task. They have to be, or they're gonna miss those notes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my guys were little, so they weren't even taking notes, but they didn't have time to, um, think about what I had said, you know, they were just saying like, what were the words that she said? They had right. no time to actually think, what did she mean? Right. Right. Um, so yeah, the wait time improved my experience tremendously. Um, but I, you know, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to come on and talk with me about your book. Um, but be before we move on to our last question, I also want to mention that um, Dr. Kaminsky has a wonderful uh, website and it is The Learning Scientist and the link will be in the show notes for all of our listeners to visit. Uh, but will you just take a couple minutes and explain the website and uh, what our listeners will find when they go there? So the Learning Scientist is a group of international cognitive psychologists like myself uh, who are interested in, uh, I guess, really science communication, um, translating research and making research more accessible for parents, students, and teachers, really anyone who's more interested in learning about the science of learning. Um, so I run that uh, along with Dr. Megan Sumeraki, Dr. Cindy Nebel, and Dr. Carolina Cooper-Tetzel. We publish blogs once a week. Uh, we tried to, we just got off a short break. Uh, we took a like one month long holiday break because you know, everyone needed some time. Uh, so you get new blogs uh, every week. Uh, there's also a podcast that comes out semi-regularly. 
And um, we also have a bunch of free resources um, about six effective teaching strategies or six effective learning strategies backed by Cognitive Psychology Research. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about those, you can go there. You can go to our resources tab and get a bunch of PowerPoints and handouts. There's also um, a book published by other members of the blog with like some really they got like a graphic artist to come in <laughs> so like it it looks really fancy um or at least compared to you know what i'm used to i really i really love all the, the cartoons the diagrams to describe all the stuff to make it um to make it easier and hopefully more interesting to present if you want to use that like in classes especially with like um probably the older kids like middle school and high school students uh, we try to make we try to make everything so it would be uh, readable at that at that level so yeah, that's what the learning scientist is. Thank you so much. I know the educators I know are always looking for other resources. So again, if you would like to check out the website, check the show notes. Also in the show notes will be a link to their book, Five Teaching and Learning Myths Debunked, A Guide for Teachers. So the last question that I would like to ask you both um, you know, every person involved with education, no matter what capacity they're in, has a teaching moment that sticks with them, whether it's a humorous moment, whether it's just impactful, sentimental, whatever the case might be, there's always something that stands out. Can you share one of those teaching moments that will stick with you for life? Doesn't matter who goes first. I can go, Althea, if you want. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's sort of like a, an inverse teaching moment. Okay. I was, we had this, uh, he was a, he was a, he, his background was, he was a social psychologist and he was teaching a cognitive psychology class in my grad, during my grad work, during my PhD work. And uh, he did not have the background. He was brought in to teach a class at the last minute that was supposed to be taught by somebody else. So he was just, you know, you know, I feel bad for the guy. He's coming in, he's just looking for a job, whatever, and he doesn't have the background, but they, they take him because they don't have anybody else, right? And it was the middle of the semester. There were some multiple times during the class where I called him on stuff that he was talking about in class. And I was like that, because I had taken cognitive psych before. And I called him and I said, not only is that not what the book says, but that's not, not what I have, have heard, right? Are you sure, professor? That kind of stuff, right? But anyway, uh, we got to like middle of the semester and he and I sat down and talked about this thing that we disagreed on. And at the end, he said, what does it really matter if you understand this? I know you're smart. You can just memorize this. And yeah, I saw your face, Lindsay. Yes, yes. That was a game changer for me. And I was like, it matters to understand. It matters a lot. And it matters to the entire field of education that understanding is really the, the point. It is not the memorization, you know, those things that we talk about is not that. Um, learning, memorization is a part of learning. And learning is a part of getting the big picture. But getting the big picture is ultimately the, the, the goal, right? So there's my inverse teaching moment. <laughs> well, that's great, right? Because a lot of times the biggest lessons that we learn are from moments like that where we might find ourselves in a situation where we're seeing something that we don't want to model after. So I think that 
that definitely would be an impactful moment. Yeah, yeah. Althea? Yeah, I'm trying to think through, um, because I have, you know, lots of stuff. Um, I think I'm going to go with uh, one of the first classes I taught at Bonaventure. So I had just recently got my PhD. It was my first semester teaching after getting my PhD. It was still really weird for people to call me doctor. I, uh, right, I I was like, I must have been like 28. Eight or something. Um, and I'm teaching a bunch of like, uh, this was an upper level class. So these were like 22 year olds. I don't, I don't look that much different from them at this point. Right. I don't, uh, I, I could see why they're like, is this like, uh, <laughs> I think they kept asking me that semester, like they were fascinated by the fact that there was like a young female professor in the classroom. Like they, they were like, how old are you? Like, why did you move here? What are you doing? Um, right. Cause we live in like kind of a remote area. And so I remember them like asking me, they're like, like, cause I explained that I wouldn't be available with like over, uh, email contacts. I like live someplace with like poor internet and they're like, are you okay? Like, you're like this, like young female professor living alone. Are you like, okay? Like they did not understand a world without like Netflix all the time. Um, so anyways, in that class, um, I had a student who was um, a little combative, but uh, I was still coming straight off of grad school. So I was like ready for like a, a fight. Um, I was like, every time he had a question, I had a response and I actually really appreciated it because I, I was just shocked that somebody cared enough to like argue with me. Um, I was expecting people to be kind of, I was expecting them to be kind of like glazed over. And so the fact that he was like actually arguing with me, I was like, this kid cares, right? If nothing else, like at least he cares. Um, and we were going over all these different, we were going over some theories of cognitive psychology and he got really frustrated with me. And he was like, at the time I had a different last name, but like the equivalent of like Dr. Kaminsky, what just, why don't you just tell me the facts? All you do is tell me theories, right? And when I go to my science classes, they tell me what the facts are. And all you want to tell me are what the theories are. Why don't you just want to tell me what the facts are? And I like went, oh, oh, oh. Oh, honey, they don't tell you the facts in the science class. They tell you the most popular theories. Every fact you've learned in a science class, that was a subtle dig on me not being an actual science. Um, every, every theory, every fact they're telling you is actually a theory. There's someone, I guarantee you, look up a, a fact from a science book. There's a lab somewhere where they're like, trying to fight against this. They've got a competing theory. This is just the best theory we have at the moment. That's all science is, is we're operating on the best theory we have at the moment. But I was like, okay, I understand several things in this moment in time. One, he at that point in time did not view this as a science. Um, I have a follow-up to this that's gonna make this fun. Um, and two, students are not as okay with ambiguity as I was, right? Like I was like, isn't this cool, man? We're all just talking about these theories. And like, I, right, I must have sounded like a hippie or something to them, right? Um, they wanted cold, hard facts they can memorize. Um, and so after that, we actually had a conversation that I had had in grad school with one of my advisors about the difference between being a knowledge consumer and a knowledge producer. And that for a lot of the students that I have in college, they're undergoing that transition between just tell me what I need to know versus understanding this so that I can contribute to the conversation and understanding that there's conversations around these things and being okay with some like ambiguity there. Um, and that's something I've been more careful to, to like 
point out to students and to kind of more gently walk them through now. Uh, as a follow-up, that student recently got his PhD in psychology. <laughs> um, so I love to rag on him for this because we still stay in contact. One of the benefits of remote learning, I got to go to his PhD defense over Zoom last semester. Um, cool. Right, Very proud moment, right? Um, so I love that this like very combative student who thought that like psychology wasn't a science. <laughs> um, I eventually converted him and he now has a PhD in psychology, which is very cool. And in school psychology, actually. That is absolutely fantastic. I would hold that over him for life, but that's oh, just me. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to um, thank everybody for um, joining us today. And I want to thank you, Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Brown for taking the time to come on to this episode. I really enjoyed our conversation and hearing from you both about the myths of teaching and learning. So if any of our listeners would like to connect with you, where could they do that? Um, you can follow me on Twitter <laughs> at Dr. Silver Fox. Um, you can also follow uh, the learning scientists on Twitter at Ace That Test. Well, if we if we have a con, we have a con website uh, that I see gets likes and new people are joining on a daily basis. Uh, if they want to reach out to me specifically as uh, one of the co-directors, then then I'm easy to find on the SBU website. You can ask me any question. I will take the time and answer your question, or I will find somebody who can. And it's usually Althea. That's usually the other person. <laughs> <laughs> Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. So listeners, head on over there to connect with Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Brown. And again, we would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. So head on over to Twitter and give us a shout and a follow at ChalkEDU. I like to give a little book highlight from something that I have been reading. So right now I am making my way through the Distance Learning Playbook by Fisher, Frey, and Hattie. And in the introduction, what stands out to me is that they say the choice of task matters critically. It's the choice of tasks relative to where students are now and where they need to go next that advances their learning. In our current teaching environment, remote, hybrid, condensed schedule, always with the threat of closing, we won't be able to dive into every detail like we did before. But we can make sure students get the understanding and skills they need to be successful next year, in the next grade, and to be knowledgeable citizens. It may not be ideal. It may not be what we would choose. But we can still provide students with what they need, a caring teacher who is there for them. If you found that as interesting as I did and you want to dive in yourself, I would encourage you to go check out that book, Distance Learning Playbook, and share with the podcast at Chalk.edu what stood out to you. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Behind the Chalk. Want to hear more? Subscribe and review the podcast wherever you like to listen and follow on Twitter at ChalkEDU. And remember, education is not the filling of a pot, but the lighting of a fire.